everybody, welcome to our Christmas series, When Love Takes You In, Love Christmas Time. And I love that scripture, Luke chapter 2, so classic, there was no room for Jesus. So today we're talking about making room, making room for Jesus in our lives. I love that uh, Christmas play, that kids' church Christmas play. You know, Mary and Joseph, little Mary and Joseph, they make their way knock on the door of the inn and the innkeeper's supposed to say, you know, there's no room, but Mary and Joseph in the play look so sad that the innkeeper totally broke script and said, oh, shucks, just come on in. I think that's classic. Hey, I do need to reference before I get into this message about making room for Jesus here at Christmas time. Last week was awesome. I'm not going to give you the exact number. You know, we just unleashed hope last week and took up uh, a collection, I guess, right? That's the old school way of saying it. I had an offering, every dollar, to go to our local partners who are on the front lines and making a difference. And I'm not going to tell you the exact number. We'll we'll do that later. But I can tell you this much. It was more than $50,000. Can you believe that? You guys never cease to amaze me. You know, when this whole pandemic started, somebody... They sent me a clip of a minister at the beginning of the pandemic saying to their church, you guys better not stop giving money to the church, you know, and that's really based in fear. We do, we do two things in life, right? Every emotion that we have is either based in love or based in fear. And fear is so easy. Fear is so quick. And we, that's the first thing we grab for. And that's what that minister was doing. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, I, you know, I'm fearful. And I'm thinking last week as we're asking for you to give and unleash hope and to make a difference, that's hard because fear is easy to grab. But you guys didn't grab for that. You grabbed for love. And when we started into this pandemic, we made a decision that we were going to go after love. And love gives. Love is courageous. Even though fear is so easy to grab, it's like the low-hanging fruit, Right. That's what we want to grab for first. But you guys grab for love and you're making such a huge difference. I just want to thank you for what you've done. And we as a church are just going to keep grabbing after love, not after fear. Well, listen, I'm going to get more into love and fear a little bit. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in the future. But I just had to get that out of the way today. So, all right, enough of that. Thank you. I All that to say, thank you so much. Huge difference in people's lives are going to happen because of you. All right, make room. Space. There's a lot of spaces in the world that you and I don't care about, right? We just like, whatever. Do do whatever with your space. You want to drive that car? Go ahead. You want to wear those clothes? Go ahead. You want to eat that food? You want to let your dog sleep in your bed? Oh my gosh, go ahead. I don't care. But then there's other spaces that we do care about, right? You ever seen that Seinfeld episode with the close talker? You can go on YouTube and not right now. Don't do it right now. Wait till after this is over. But go on YouTube, put Seinfeld close talker. You know, the guy's like right in his space. What sets off your space meter? You ever have a neighbor tell you what to do with your space, like unsolicited, just kind of butted in and said, let me tell you what you should do with your space. What sets off your space meter? What just, hey man, that's, that's too much. So when God comes along, it looks like in the Bible, he's messing with our space. 
A lot of people, me included, growing up in the church, I thought, man, it's a long list of do's and don'ts. And I know people who refuse to go to church because like, it's just a long list of do's and don'ts. Like, God, what the nerve? All of these do's and you're messing with my space. You're making my space meter just go completely haywire. Back up from my space. But you know, everybody, that's not exactly what's going on. Actually, it's not what's going on at all. There's something completely different happening. God is actually watching us try to accomplish something that we deep down want so much. And we are, we're failing at it. It was something that we need deep down in our life and we're failing. We're craving to get back to a space. So if you, if you just go through the Bible, those first 12 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 12, so critically important. Adam and Eve, they're experiencing harmony. They are home. They're experiencing what the Bible calls shalom. That's harmony with God, harmony with each other, harmony with nature. Then they make a wrong move, a wrong decision. Based in what? Based in fear. The low-hanging fruit. Based in fear. Short-term, fear-based decision. And they lose home. They lose shalom. And now they're exiled. They're exiled from the garden. That's home. That's where they want to be. That's what they crave. And then you see, you see after that, you see Cain. And what does Cain do? Cain makes a fear-based decision too. And what we have that God is watching is humanity trying to reestablish sacred space, trying to find our way back to shalom, back to home, because that's really where we want to be. So Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, they make a sacrifice. Well, in, in the scriptural text, when you make a sacrifice, you're, re, you're trying to reestablish sacred space. But Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted. So what did Cain do? Now, everybody, have you ever looked at it this way? Because in the biblical text, in the ancient Near East, this is the way they would have viewed it. Cain kills his brother Abel. They would have looked at it this way. I never looked at it before. I wouldn't. I just said, well, you know, he was offended. He killed his brother Abel. But they would have looked at it this way. Cain sacrifices his brother Abel to reestablish sacred space. Human sacrifice was the norm. And Cain sacrifices. Do you ever know anybody, or maybe have you done this before? Have you ever sacrificed another human being? Have you ever like tried to overpower? Because we're told that Cain overpowers his brother Abel, trying to find his way back in. Hey God, you know what? I'll sacrifice this. I'll do this. Have you ever, have you ever overpowered somebody with your words or your actions in order to get what you want? Because that's what Cain is doing. He is sacrificing his brother Abel to try to reestablish that sacred space by way of power, but it doesn't work. He's frustrated. Then there's another really well-known story, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. What it, they had established a new technology. They had invented bricks. So now they're smarter than Cain. And they are going to, by their power and by their newfound intelligence and technology, they're going to build their way up to God to reestablish sacred space. But it's to it totally fails. So we desire something deep down that that shalom, that 
home. We want it. We need it. We've got to have it. And God is standing back and he's watching all of these failed attempts. So everybody, I just want to spend it. And it is so interesting how we spin around what it actually is happening. We look and say, God, you're butting in. Don't give me this long list of doing. You're messing with my space. Back off, God. Actually, it's not what's happening at all. God's watching the failed attempts is something we need so desperately, so deeply. God's not butting in. God's helping us out. God actually has the answer to the deep down problem. God says in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for humanity to be alone. That sense of belonging and shalom is so deep and so needed. Everybody, loneliness is dangerous. It's dangerous on so many levels. I just want to give you some thoughts about loneliness and, and, and why that's affecting us so negatively in this world. We want to be back home. We were not created or designed to be in a disconnected state. Scientists will tell us that our brains are wired for connection. We need that. Who wired our brains that way? God says it's not good that we're alone and living in a disconnected space. Loneliness is dangerous. Consider some of these facts. I know you've probably read a bunch of them. I'm just going to remind you of some really important things. Half of Americans say they struggle with loneliness. Over in England, Great Britain, their government now has a minister of loneliness. You know what the single greatest fear of millennials is? Loneliness. Now think about some of the negative health implications of being away from home, of being out of harmony, of not having shalom, of being lonely, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, stroke, cancer, heart disease, dementia, Alzheimer's. All of these things as a result of loneliness. Now how, how deep is that? How troubling is that? Think about this. Increasing our odds of dying early. You have a 5% chance, right, to increase your odds of dying early if you live in an area where there's bad air pollution. 5% increases it. 20% increase in the odds of dying early if you are obese. 30% increase if you drink alcohol excessively but a 45% increase if you're lonely. Being lonely, being disconnected, according to the studies, is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, when I go to the doctor, very first question they ask me is, do you smoke? Why? Because smoking is so bad for you. If you're disconnected, if you are lonely, if you don't have a place to belong, if you're not home, And home in the garden was a place to be totally known and totally loved. Be at harmony with God. To be at a place, as we're told, Adam and Eve were naked. That means more than physically naked. That means that they were totally known and totally loved. If you don't have that kind of place, if you are disconnected, as half of Americans say they are, then it's like smoking 15 cigarettes every single day. And so... What, what does Adam and Eve try to do? They try to make their own way based out of fear. How does Cain and Abel, right? What's that story about? Cain tries to reestablish. He tries to get back home. He tries to get to Shalom by his own power. What do they do with the Tower of Babel? By their own power. That's fear. That's us trying, I'm going to make my own way. And you know what the Bible says in Zechariah 
chapter four, verse number six, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Here's what Frederick Nietzsche says. Now, he comes to the wrong conclusion as you study the Bible, but he was brilliant. And this is what he says about humanity. He says, this world is the will to power and nothing besides. And you yourselves also are the will to power and nothing besides. Nietzsche talks about this natural thing that we have inside of us, that we just power, that comes natural to us. It's based in fear, right? To, 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 I'm going to take it. I'm going to overpower physically, verbally. I'm going to power. That's how I'm going to get what I want is the will to power. It's the strong eats the weak. It's the, it's the Darwinian thought about only the strong survive. What could be more natural than that? Our world is about the strong eating the weak. And yet, there's this question mark. Why is it that families and societies thrive when we don't express the will to power? When actually there's altruism and there's love, not fear. When we don't overpower somebody, but we pull our power back. Why is it that societies thrive? It's a big question mark for Darwin. And and Nietzsche's right. There is desire. Cain did it, overpower. Babel did it, overpower. That comes natural, but it doesn't work. It comes easy, but it doesn't work. So what does work? What gets us to the place that we hunger and we thirst and we crave to get back to shalom, to get back home? It's what we all need. And it's having such a negative impact on us. And loneliness is just going straight up on a graph. What will actually get us back there? So God is watching all of this. God's not butting in. He's helping us out. You know why? Because he loves you. He wants to help this world because he loves us. He's not butting in. We have such an interesting way of spinning things around. He's not butting in in your life. He's trying to help you out. He's trying to help you get what you truly want and crave deep down. He's trying to welcome you back home. And so God gives us a plan. And this is what we're going to see throughout this Christmas season. God gives us a plan and God's plan crushes loneliness. God's plan brings you back to home, to a place of harmony, to a place of shalom. And that plan begins in Genesis chapter 12. So Genesis 1 through 11 is a prologue. It kind of sets up everything that the Bible is about. And then God introduces us a plan in Genesis chapter 12 and it's called a covenant. And in a covenant, there's always a meal. And in a covenant, there's always blood. Now, I like meals, but I don't like blood. And I'm going to talk about that because we're going to have communion here in a little bit. Okay, so I want you to to prepare for communion. So I'm going to unpack what's the deal with the meal and what's the deal with the blood. I'll do that during communion. But here's the third thing. Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. God says, this is for all people. I'm going to bless all nations through you, through this covenant, this unbreakable promise Everybody is so it's all encompassing. It includes all people. God says all nations on the earth is going to be blessed. Now I want to skip forward all the way to the end of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. And something very, very interesting happens in the first two chapters of the Bible and in the last two chapters of the book of Exodus. And Genesis and Exodus are completely tied together, right? They're, they are hooked together. The end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, you see a conjunction that exists there, letting us know that Genesis and Exodus are tied together. In the first two chapters, God builds 
a home for humanity. And in the last two chapters of Exodus, humanity builds a home for God. And we see God coming down and inhabiting that home, the tabernacle that humanity builds. So there's something really important that's going. There's a mirroring that's happening. That's what I hope to bring out to you in the next, in the next few moments of this. Uh, Genesis 131. Exodus 39, 43. Just check this out. In Hebrew literature, again, it's called mirroring and it brings us to a closure, to a closure. It brings us back home. It says in Genesis 131, and God saw. It says in Exodus 39, 43, and Moses saw. It says in Genesis 2, 2, God finished the work. It says in Exodus 40, 33, Moses finished the work. It says in Genesis 2, 3, that God blessed. And then we're told in Exodus 39, 43, that Moses blessed. So it's a mirroring that's going on. And there's more. I just gave you a couple. We're told that God says seven times in Genesis that it's good. And we're told that God says seven times at the end of Exodus, and the Lord commanded. These two things are coming. It's a mirroring. It's a closure of building home. Now, think about this. Rabbi Isaac Luria, one of the greatest... uh, Jewish thinkers that there was. He said this, God is infinite. Well, we, we believe that God is infinite. Most people believe that, that God is, and you read the Bible, God is infinite. He, the Bible says God is all consuming. God is light and God's light is everywhere. You read in the famous 139th Psalm that if, you know, I'm in heaven, God's there. If I'm in hell, God's there. In other words, God is everywhere. God is infinite. There's no place that God is not. God's light fills Everywhere and everything. There is no space that God does not fill. And so Rabbi, Rabbi Isaac Luria says this, says, when God created you and when God created me and when God created the universe, because God is everywhere and God is infinite, God had to limit himself back. He had to make room. He had to make space. God had to pull back in order to create you and to create me. And in order for us, to come back home and experience shalom, we have to also create space for God. So when God in Exodus comes down, his glory comes down off the mountain, what they're doing and building the tabernacle at the end of Exodus is they are creating space. They're limiting themselves. And God commanded and God commanded God. What they're doing when that happens is they're creating space. They're creating space for God. God created space for you. And now for us to get back home, we're going to have to limit ourselves and create space for God. So this self-limiting of God really isn't new news, particularly somebody who's been around the Bible a long time, particularly to Christian theologians, because we've been talking about that a long time, the self-limiting of Jesus. Classic text, Philippians chapter 2. Let's read what it says. He, speaking of Jesus, was like God in every way, but he did not think that his being equal with God was something to use for his own benefit. That's what theologians have said for years, the self-limiting of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, instead, he gave up everything, limited himself, even his place with God, and accepted the role of a servant. So we're told a lot in our culture Nietzsche, the will to power. Cain, Babel, Adam and Eve, express yourself. We're told a lot in our culture, express yourself. I'm not saying 
that that's wrong in totality. Express yourself. Go ahead, express yourself. But this full-on onslaught of just total unrestrained self-expression will not get us home. It'll get us farther from home. It is self-limitation that actually brings us home. It's the building of the tabernacle. It's God limiting himself and then us building a home for God following his commands, limiting ourselves, that actually brings us to the place that we want to be because what we're doing is not working clearly. It's clearly not working. There is another way. Expressing ourselves, everybody, is taking us farther from home, farther from shalom. Adam and Eve, Cain, Babel, they refused to limit themselves. They fully expressed themselves. They were driven by fear and they weren't driven by love. Now, this can't be any more relevant than it is right now today. This is full-on, unrestrained self-expression. People are just, just putting it all out there. Now, maybe you saw about a dozen years ago, the classic, right? That article that was written in the Atlantic by Bernard Lewis. I'm right. You're wrong. Go to hell. That's full-on self-expression. That's will to power. That's I'm going to verbally assault you and shame you. I'm right. You're wrong. Go to hell. That won't get us where we want to go. It is not going to work. Right now, we are so polarized. This is, polarization has been around a long time. And, and it's not like just in the last year or two or five or whatever. It's, this has been started for, for, for decades ago that we're ramping up that polarization. We are not united by love with other people. We're not united by giving or being gracious to other people. Right now, we're so polarized. What unites us here and here is fear, anger, frustration, bitterness. Peggy Noonan says we're bitter and we're proud of it. Uniting around fear and anger and bitterness and frustration does not get us to shalom. It does not pay, take us back home. It's based in fear and fear doesn't work and fear is not of God and it's not God's plan. You want to get back home? You want to get to shalom? You want to crush your loneliness? You want to deal with your mental health and your physical health and you want to be at one in harmony? It is through love and that is God's plan and that's what works and that is totally proven, everybody. That's the cool thing. The Bible works. Data shows it. Social scientists are preaching it, saying, please pay attention to what actually works. A couple things to think about is this. It is estimated that 15% of Americans no longer speak to a family member or a close friend because of all the polarization. Notice what I said. They don't speak. The relationship is cut off because of what is going on. Our echo chambers have never been so strong and so pure, right? So you have inside of your echo chambers, the people who think like you and act like you and speak like you, they're in your culture. And if anybody says even a little bit of something that is outside of that, they are shamed and insulted and driven out so that the echo chamber can be so pure. So we should feel so good. Because we're around people just like us. And if anybody steps out of line, they get cast out. That echo chamber is so strong and it's so pure. And so our belonging, right? We should be like, yes, I've got the people around me. I've reached home. But we haven't. Because right along, check it out. 
on the graphs with the polarization going up like this, you know what else is going like this? Loneliness. A disconnected, it is not working. Our echo chambers are pure and strong and our loneliness is going exponentially up. It's not working. Fear does not work. Love works. That is the way that works. We have lost our connection. We are unwilling to deal and to make space and room for paradox. Jesus Christ is a paradox. Everything about Jesus is a paradox. We're told in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. That is a paradox, everybody. Truth says when somebody messes up, shame them, insult them, yell and scream at them, fully express your anger towards them. That's what truth says. Truth says they crossed the line, cast them out. You know what grace says? Grace says, let's welcome it. Let's just forget it. Just let's let it go. Let's love them. Let's give them a hug. Let's give them a kiss. Jesus Christ is grace and truth. Now, what is a paradox? Paradox. A contrary opinion to. Grace has an opinion on something and truth has an opinion. And the two are very, very different. You know what Carl Jung says about paradox? Carl Jung says it's one of our most valued spiritual possessions. Are you willing to be a paradox for Jesus. Do you know that Jesus is a paradox? And if you're going to follow him, that you have to leave space in your life for people who have a contrary opinion than you do? Because Jesus Christ is a paradox and his is a way of love. Now, I want to get into this plan in conclusion. And I want to talk about two very clear steps to belonging, to going back home and defining harmony. Step number one is you've got to know your self-worth. You will never connect with anybody, God or people, until you are clear on your self-worth. That is where it all begins. Now, this is a, such an important point. There's no way I can fully unpack it now. And I just want to say at the beginning of 2021, we are going to get into a whole series. It's going to, it's probably going to cast its shadow all over all of 2021. We are going to get into what the ideas that are presented in the Bible radically change our lives and help to lift us out of so many of the pitfalls that we experience in life. So, but I have to say right now is, is that step number one, you will never connect with God or others until you know your own self-worth. God makes room for you. Now, since today is communion, I want to say this. Communion is a meal. It is the table of Jesus Christ. He slides over, right? He doesn't say, no, there's no room for you here. There's no room in the end. He slides over. He limits himself. He backs up and he makes space. He makes space for you. And he makes space for you because he loves you. Now, here's the thing. Jesus Christ makes space for me at his table. What is the table? So when we talk about the bread. Now, I just have a piece of bread here, but it was a whole meal. I love meals. This represents the blood of Christ. I don't like blood. So let me explain this real briefly, okay? In the Bible, when you have a meal with somebody, you have a meal with your family members or somebody that you want to strengthen and bond with because you want them to be like a family member. And so when Jesus Christ is inviting us to his table, his table has unlimited capacity. There's always plenty of room at the table of Jesus Christ because he wants you to be a part of his family. What's up with the blood? Why the blood? 
when I was growing up in, in, in church, we used to sing songs, oh, the blood of Jesus, the blood never loses power. I'm like, oh, what is, what does that mean, blood? You've heard the phrase maybe before, blood is thicker than water. What does that mean? Blood is family. And in the Bible, blood represents family. So when Jesus says the cup represents his blood, you just need to think of it this way. Here's what it represents. Jesus Christ wants to be permanent family with you. Permanent family. He totally knows you. He knows everything about you. You're totally known. You're totally loved. What is loneliness? Loneliness is far more than being alone. Loneliness is not being known. I have a lot of people around me, but nobody truly knows me. And if they did know me, they wouldn't love me. Jesus Christ knows everything about you. He totally loves you. And he still wants to be your family. Now, I want you to think about this. I am nothing like Jesus. My words, my deeds, my thoughts are highly offensive to Jesus Christ. And yet he steps back and he says, John, come on in. There's a place at my table. And instead of expressing himself and saying, I'm right, you're wrong, go to hell, John. He steps back. He self-limits himself. He doesn't express himself, although he should, because I'm nothing like Jesus. And he says, here, sit next to me. Sit next to me. Because he loves me. He limits himself. All right, so even though that's really hard to think about my self-worth, and even though it's step number one in having a true connection with God and others, that I've got to embrace that, my own self-worth, that is difficult, but it's easy in comparison to step number two. Step number two is Jesus says, hey, John, that person whose political and social views are offensive to you and radically wrong, I need you to slide over because they're your new family member and they're sitting right next to you. And I want you to share the bread and the meal with them side by side and the blood because they're your family. Now that's, that's hard to do, isn't it? But that's how meaningful connection happens. It doesn't happen by self-expression, by me yelling at my new family member here right next to me, by my, by me tweeting and posting, unfriending, doesn't happen that way. It happens by welcoming them to the table, welcoming Judas right next to me. This is what happens. I want to ask you, so the Bible is pretty clear. It tells us in the scriptures that we should pray for the emperor. That's what was written, right? In Rome, emperor, pray for the Roman emperor. You know what the Roman emperor was doing? The Roman emperor was uh, killing Christians. The Roman emperor was impaling Christians and lighting them or throwing them to animals by the dozens and hundreds and hundreds, right? It's terrible. It's terrible. Do you pray for the president? You pray for President Trump, President Obama, um, President Bush, President Clinton. Do you do? Do you do that? Do you pray for people who have different political and social views from you. you know, everybody, this is why Nelson Mandela and Dr. King were extraordinary leaders. Because they loved, because they knew that that, the philosophy of Jesus Christ worked. Listen, we revere Dr. King's name. So many people revere Dr. King's name. But I'm not sure we all revere his philosophy. His philosophy was not rooted and based in fear. It was rooted and based in love reaching out and loving people who were very different, who were a paradox, who had a contrary opinion. That is the way to belonging. That's the way that works. 
our way of shaming and fear and polarizing is not working. All the data shows that it will not work. Jesus's way is the way that works. And my question to you today is, are you willing to be a paradox for Jesus? Are you willing to be a paradox for Jesus? Now, with all that said, everybody, and knowing how deeply we long to get back home to Shalom, we're going to take communion. Now, we're told the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed by Judas, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And then took the cup. He says, I want you to be a family member with me. And then I want you to welcome the paradoxes in your life to also be a family with you. And this is how you're going to experience peace and harmony and true connection and belonging in your life. And he blessed it. I want to bless the bread and the cup. And I want to invite you to eat and drink with me after the blessing of the bread and the cup. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, We thank you that God, that you give us a plan that works and it crushes loneliness and disconnection and it brings us to the place of belonging that we so need. God bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Bring us home in Jesus name. Amen. Please let's eat and drink together. We are going to end with a very special song. It's called When Love Takes You In. And I want to read just the beginning of this song before we sing it. I know you've heard the story, but they all sound too good to be true. You've heard about a place called home, but there doesn't seem to be one for you. So one more night you cry yourself to sleep and drift off to a distant dream where love takes you in and everything changes. A miracle starts with the beat of a heart when love takes you home and says you belong here. The loneliness ends and a new life begins when love takes you in.